Right, let's read from the last, for the last time from Philippians, shall we? We're in Philippians chapter 4, right at the end of that letter, and we just have a few verses to read uh, to finish it off. So, this is from Philippians chapter 4 and verse 10 onwards, and uh, Paul says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you have renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you had been concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I am not saying this because I am in need, for I learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Yet, it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. Not that I am looking for a gift, but I am looking for what may be credited to your account. I have received full payment and even more. I am amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. That's the last little that we have to fill in tonight. And uh, let's just uh, remember where we've been um, uh, in, uh, last week. We talked about the, the, the fact that it's about losing ground about keeping on going in the Christian life without losing territory, the way that Ukraine seems to be uh, losing it at the moment to Russia. We've just heard on the news today that Russia claims to have taken the whole of that uh, 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 Donbass area now. It may be just uh, a smokescreen. It may be just something they're saying to uh, hope the defenders are going to lose heart. We just don't know. But bit by bit, they've been advancing over that area, encroaching on bits of Ukraine. And Paul's basically been saying, this can happen in your Christian life, and you mustn't let that happen. You've got to stand firm. So we talked about three ways in which you can lose ground last week. One is relationships, the problems that you have with people. And you remember, there were two, church, two people in the church in Philippi who could not stand one another. Two ladies called Yodia and Syntyche, who'd been pretty prominent in the church, who'd done all kinds of courageous things for the gospel, who'd stood by Paul when he was in Philippi and worked alongside him. And for some reason, they just decided they couldn't stand one another. And so as a result, um, they weren't talking and people were starting to take sides. And Paul names them in that chapter that we read and says, listen, I ask those two to sort it all out together. Be of one mind in the Lord. And uh, uh, so he talked about relationships and the way in which those can cause problems that break things up and hamper the work of God and mean that we look around. Then we talked about emotions. And Paul talks about the ways that people can have in a difficult world, especially when they hear worrying news from abroad. Epaphroditus, the guy that they sent out to take a financial gift to Paul, he's just gone off the map. 
Has he disappeared with the money? Has he run away with it? That doesn't sound like an Aphrodite. And then they get another message that says, oh no, he's been very ill, so ill, he, he was pretty close to death. So is he all right? Is he going to get better? And there are pressures for around as well. They're living in a society where they're not very popular. The emperor in Rome, who's been Nero for a few years, was a, 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 quite a good lad to start with, really, but now he's um, uh, killed his mother and killed his old tutor Seneca, and he's starting to be a little bit weird in his relationships with not just women, but men as well. And you're starting to think, maybe he's not all he's cracked up to be, and perhaps he's going to cause problems for Christians, as he is in just a few years' time. The persecution is on its way. And so there are lots of things to worry them in Philippi. And uh, Paul says to them, be anxious for nothing. In everything by prayer and petition, uh, let your, uh, with thanksgiving, let your prayers and petitions be known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and minds secure in Christ Jesus. Don't lose ground in your emotions. Don't let those emotions, emotions be carried away. Instead, let the peace of God build a garrison around your hearts and minds and keep you going. And then the third thing that last week you might remember was their, was their ambitions. And he talks about their priorities. Focus on what's good, what you ought to be emulating. And he talks about the kinds of things that they ought to be thinking about and, and focusing their minds on. And um, he says, if, if anything's excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things because the things that you think about will determine what you become. And if you're constantly thinking about trivial, useless uh, things, or if you're thinking in terms of cynicism and bitterness towards other people, your life is going nowhere. You're spending your energies on things that really don't count. Focus on where you want to be. Like an athlete, fix your eye on the target. Head towards the mark. And he's already talked, hasn't he, in Philippians, about pressing towards the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Fix your eye on the target and go for it. And so your ambitions are important too. What you think about is important. You need to meditate on the right things. But it's not just that. Because he goes on finally, and this is the last thing that we looked at last week, to say, whatever you've learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. Paul is so confident that he's been living an all-out Christian lifestyle. He's able to say to them, look, just watch the way I do it. Catch my style. Be like me. I remember being at youth camp where uh, uh, one lad came to me and said, um, I'm kind of obsessed with David Bowie. This is a long time ago. <laughs> and he said, um, when does that become dangerous? And I said, well, you know, just how obsessed are you? And he said, well, I spent a lot of money last week on a pair of sunglasses, which are just exactly the same as David Bowie. I said, be worried, be very worried. <laughs> because when Paul says in the New Testament, be imitators of me, he doesn't mean eat the same food, eat, uh, wear the same clothes, be exactly like me, be a carbon copy of me, a mini Paul walking around trying to just like me. What, the word he uses means catch my smile. Be like me in my devotion to God. Set the same priorities for your life that I set for mine. And you will find that the way I live is the happiest way of living. I've proven that in my own life in yours. And so he says, what you've seen in me, put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you, and you will not lose ground. So it's not just meditating, it's imitating as well. People who are good examples. People have got something to show us about, that's the way to do it. That's far better than the way I've been doing it. That's how I ought to be living. And that, together, uh, means you stand for Okay, so he said all of that, and basically he's given us the message of Philippians. You could end it there, but he goes on. Uh, why do we have this last little bit at the end? Well, let's think about Philippi and where it was. There it is on the map, Philippi, Macedonia to the north of Greece. And uh, where is Paul? 
All we can say is this letter was written from somewhere a long way from Philippi. The most likely place that Paul was writing for, uh, from, according to many scholars, uh, oh, yeah, that's when things started in Philippi. 49 AD was the time when Paul went there to start with. And uh, when the first people became Christians, Leah, you remember, the Philippian jailer, and church, a little church started um, that uh, uh, had a lot of opposition to contend with, but still, we read in the Philippians, behaved very bravely and won other people to the gospel so that by the time Paul wrote to them, they were flourishing. That's Philippi. But the letter was possibly written from Rome. That's the most common thing, because you might remember, after the Apostle Paul appealed to Caesar and was finally sent off to Rome, he had about two years living in his own house, under armed guards, certainly, soldiers there to make sure he didn't bolt, but at the same time, free to write letters and communicate with people. It is possible that he wrote to them from Rome. That's a long way away, 780 miles. Uh, and if so, then it was between 60 and 62, when he was under house arrest, that he'd have written the letter. And uh, he's writing to people whom he obviously loves very dearly. We've seen this all the way through Philippians. Philippians is one of those churches that he really loved. And he's, he, he thought they were brilliant, and he just wanted them to keep on getting better. But it might not have been Rome. It might have been a little bit earlier. Another group of scholars would say it was probably from Caesarea. You remember, before he got to Rome, he'd appealed to Caesar, but they didn't send him off straight away. They kept him in prison in Caesarea for two years. Now, we know that he had friends there with him. Luke was around with him, other people. He had writing materials. So it's well possible that he could have written the letter from Caesarea. The problem with Rome and Caesarea is that they are such a long way. I mean, Caesarea is 850 miles from Philippi. So uh, when you think about all of the things that he talks about Philippians, the, the, the communications they've had with one another, it, it seems a little bit difficult to fit all of that into two years. They had to hear that Paul had got to this place, and then he had to get a gift together to send to him, and he had to send Epaphroditus, and Epaphroditus had to fall ill and nearly die. Then the message about that had to get back to Philippi, had to send somebody else. And, and all of the things that had to happen, it seems impossible to fit into just two years, unless it was a bit closer. So the other possibility is it was in Ephesus, because even earlier than his time in Caesarea, Paul must have been in jail in Ephesus. You read that in 2 Corinthians. He hints about what went on. It clearly wasn't very pleasant, but he must have written some letters from there as well, because that's probably where Colossians is written from as well, as you will probably get onto in the next few weeks. Um, so wherever it was, even... Um, Ephesus is 439 miles away from Philippi, and Paul is conscious that he might not see these people again. Do you remember how he speaks earlier in the letter about, well, I'm in a strait twixt two, whether to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, or not. And he, he knows that it's possible, as he's imprisoned, that one of these days, the unpredictable Roman government is going to say, right, just kill him, finish him, that's it. And he could at any point hear the tread of a soldier bearing a sword, walking along the corridor, ready to put him to death. And in fact, in, in uh, the mid-60s, Paul was beheaded. He was a Roman citizen, so they wouldn't do anything nasty to him, but they would chop his head off. Uh, it was an honorable way to die. And uh, that's what happened to Paul. But did he manage to get back to Philippi in the meantime? We don't know. And certainly at the point he wrote this letter, whether it was in Rome or Ephesus or, or, or Caesarea, he had no idea if he would see them again. He thought he might because he thought God was going to spare him because he had no work to do with the Philippians. And from what we know of history, it is possible that after even his imprisonment in Rome, he had a little bit of free time when he managed to get to Spain, he managed to get back to Colossae, he managed to go to, 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 to Philippi too. 
We, we just don't know how it all panned out. But Paul is conscious, and he writes this last bit of Philippians, <coughs> that it might just be the last words I ever get to speak to these people. And so he's got to end with something that makes some sense. Now, a lot of scholars have been saying recently, why does he put this bit at the end of Philippians? It could have been worked in in a different way. See, one of the big things that's happened in, in uh, New Testament scholarship over the last few years is rhetorical criticism. <laughs> when you went to school in the days of ancient Rome, you were taught rhetoric. That meant the right way to deliver a speech, the right way to write a letter, the right way to write your life story. And rhetoric was simply, these are the rules, this is how you do it. And to write a letter, there were several stages. And Ben Witherington III, who <coughs> is big on rhetorical criticism, a great New Testament scholar, has worked out how those different rules for writing a letter work through in Philippians. Excuse all the Latin, but you start with a prescript where you introduce yourself, and he says that's chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. And then you get the other bits going through, the exordium, the narratio, the oppositio, the probatio, and the peroratio. And the peroratio is the bit at the end, the peroration, where you really let it rip. And that's what we've just had in chapter 4. And he works out where they should be, and those are the places where he says those things happened within the letter. And he reads 4.9. He says it should stop there. But there's that other bit. So what's going on? What's 4.10 to 23 about? <coughs> and he says, and he's not the only scholar that says this, that what's going on here is a thing that didn't always happen, but could happen, called insinuatio. <laughs> when you make insinuations about people, you know, uh, in, our, in our culture, means you're sort of hinting that they're not as good as they ought to be. And I could tell you a few stories, quite honestly. But that's not what insinuatio means in Latin. What it means is a closing argument that you've brought in after you've done everything that everybody expects. I mean, they've all been talking rhetoric, so they go, oh, there's Paul's prescript, his exordium, the ratio, where are we up to? Ratio. Where are we doing the peroratio? Oh, there's the peroratio, now we're finished. Oh no, there's another bit to come. Oh, he's doing an insinuatio. And uh, Witherington says this, this final argument serves as something as a, of a denouement, a coda, or necessary closing remarks as Paul concludes what he needs to say to his audience. Like the lawyer who reserves something different and extra for his closing remarks before the jury in order to overcome any final possible reluctance to being persuaded by his arguments and acting accordingly, Paul surprises his conscience with, and one more thing. All lawyers like to do that, don't they? If you're pleading for uh, your client is innocent and you've done the best job you possibly can, you save one extra shot in the locker. So that when the jury think you're just winding to a halt, you can say, there's one more thing I would like you to think about, ladies and gentlemen and jury. And you throw this one last thing at them. And so they go into the jury room to consider the verdict thinking, wow, yeah, I hadn't thought of that last point. And so that's the one thing that's in their mind as they go. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's giving you his last little bit. He's given you the argument. He's talked about what it means to be a church in Philippi, what it means to be a Christian and live the, the life of Jesus in the style of Philippians chapter 2, you know, the self-giving love that Jesus showed. And so he's just got this last little bit to, be, to do. And I think what he wants to talk about here are three subjects that he just wants them to be thinking about as he ends. One is Christian contentment. You do this stuff because it makes you happy. <laughs> It brings you happiness you'll never find in the same way anywhere else. So what is Christian contentment and what can it do for you? Second, he wants to talk a little bit about Christian giving. Because these guys have sent him presents in the past. When he moved on from Philippi to um, 
Thessalonica and started to plant a church there, he was up against all sorts of difficulties. And they sent aid, it says, again and again when I was in need. Nobody in Thessalonica knew him. How was he going to survive? Well, the Thessalonians, uh, the, the Philippians rather, who were 110 miles away from Thessalonica, kept on sending people on foot <laughs> down with gifts. Here's another gift, Paul. This will keep you going for another fortnight. And Paul obviously remembered that with tremendous attention. Now he's somewhere else, Caesarea, Ephesus, Rome. We don't know. And they've sent another gift. And he starts off this passage, doesn't he, saying, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that you've now renewed your concern for me. Wow, it's another financial gift from Philippi. Thank you so much for it. But he talks about Christian giving because he says, I want you to feel obligated for the future. And I don't want you to think I'm dependent on what you give because it's God ultimately who's responsible, not you, for making sure I'm okay. And so he gives him some principles about Christian giving and also Christian receiving which he wants them to remember as he's done. Then the third thing I think that he talks about is just Christian fellowship. And that's just the last few verses right at the end, 21 through to 23, greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. Because the way he finishes, I think, is very, very carefully chosen. And we'll see that in a minute when we get there. So let's talk about those things, shall we? First of all, there was Christian contentment. And that section about contentment, uh, um, I think he's got three things to say. First of all, contentment is a secret to be learned. Learning to be content is not something that comes with the territory. When you first become a Christian, learning to live with the contentment that God wants you to have is something that you need to learn. It doesn't necessarily come. When you first become a Christian, you may be really happy. You may feel great because, you know, your sins are forgiven. The Lord has gone into your life. Things are happening. He's answering your prayers. It's a fantastic place to be. But staying contented when the tough times come... <laughs> That doesn't come with the package. You've got to learn that. So Paul says, um, <coughs> uh, in verse uh, uh, 11, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I have learned the secret of being content in each and every situation. And the words he uses there are quite interesting. The word for contentment, for example, is the word the Stoic philosophers used to use. Now, Stoics believed that... Um, the world is full of hurts and problems and difficulties, and they will really get you down unless you learn to be self-sufficient. You have to be the kind of person that, you know, it's just not too affected. My wife died last week. Oh, well, fair enough. I'll get another one. <laughs> My house burned down last night. Well, that's what happens in life, isn't it? So you just, you just brush around this fortune, and you learn to be stoic and stand there and just take it all. And the word they used, autarke, for that, is the word the law uses here. Not that Paul's a stoic, not by any means. And they know that. They know he's not saying you have to be self-sufficient, you have to be strong, you have to build yourself up to be resilient and just push it all back. No, his contentment comes from Christ. C Christ gives you real contentment. All the stoics can say is be a man, keep a stif stiff upper lip, remember that disasters come to everybody and what's happened to you? Well, there are worse things happening in Africa. It's not that kind of thing. It's saying... Jesus is able to deal with any situation that life throws at you. Learn that lesson and learn to be self-sufficient in him. And he also uses another interesting word when he says, I have learned the secret of being content. 
That's a word that's taken from the mystery religions. You know, they had these mystery religions in, in, in the days of the Roman Empire. Uh, uh, cults, which were kept very secret indeed. A bit like Freemasonry in our age, and you know, you could only be admitted if you were thought wealthy, and you'd get you to roll up your trouser leg or whatever, and bare your breast, and swear blood-curdling oaths, and all the things they do. And outsiders weren't supposed to know what went on in the cult. Well, this, I have learned the secret, literally means, I have been initiated into the mystery of. <laughs> And so Paul's drawing some, some words from the Stoics and the philosophers in Greece and other words from the mystery religions, the cult of Mithras, the bull slayer, the, the religion of Sibylle and Ceres and other groups like that that were very mysterious and saying, look, these are not the answer, but being a contented Christian is a matter of knowing where contentment comes from. And that is a secret that you need to learn. And as you go through life, God will teach you that bit by bit. And if you do that, then you can live in a contented way. Paul says somewhere else, doesn't he? Godliness with contentment is great gain. So that's the first thing. It's a secret to be learned. The second thing is that contentment is something that can be threatened by both wealth and poverty. And Paul says, I know how to handle it. I know how to be poor. I know how to be wealthy. And in both of those situations, I have learned the secret of negotiating things so that I don't fall into any of the difficulties that being super rich or being super poor can bring into your life. Um, I have learned the secret, he says, of being wealthy, of abounding. The word in Greek that he uses for being wealthy is to superabound, to be in excess, to be superfluous. In other words, he's talking about being in a situation where your bank account is so healthy you don't really need anything else. You're, you're, you're comfortable. You're happy. For the time being, anyway, you have no needs whatsoever. And as I learned how to negotiate that situation, how to be like that and yet not lose it. You see, there are all sorts of dangers in wealth, aren't there? I mean, if you think, think about it, when you're wealthy, it's easy to slip into wastefulness. You buy things you don't need. You waste time on activities that are not going to help in any way whatsoever. And gradually, the balance tips in your life between meeting your own needs and just Spending money and, and buying things because you just want to. And, and it's a lifestyle. It's what everybody does around you. And uh, sometimes uh, too much wealth can be a dangerous, dangerous thing. Uh, there's a story told about an old Quaker who had very little in his life, who lived next door to uh, a house where a guy was moving in who had everything. And, you know, lorry after lorry drew up outside the house and took in all of these gadgets that the old Quaker had never seen before and just stood there on his, 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 his front path and looked at these things going into the house. And uh, in the end, he just couldn't believe it. And the last load went into the house next door of all these unnecessary things. And he, he called to the man over the fence. He said, hey, neighbor, if there's anything you don't have, just call round and I'll tell you how to do without it. <laughs> And that's a good, important thing to learn, isn't it? How to do without things that you don't actually need. It's easy to slip into wastefulness. Also, the more you've got, the more unable you become to understand the dilemmas that poor people have. I remember back when we were moving down to Exeter, uh, we had a bit of a false dawn because we were going to buy a house, which in the end they sent to somebody else. And uh, we had already made some of the moves towards moving. And it didn't happen for another few weeks. One of the things that happened was that the telephone company had cut off our landline. And so for a few weeks before we went to, to, to came down to Exeter, 
we had to go and find a phone box. This was in the days before mobile phones, if you believe such a thing existed. And we had to go out and find a phone box to make any call. And at a time when you're trying to move house and you have to communicate with solicitors and all sorts of people, that's kind of difficult. It's not easy. And I remember thinking, things as I walked down to the centre of town one night trying to find a phone box, this is what it's like for some people all the time. We've lived in a house where we've just taken for granted the fact we've got a telephone we can pick up and use at any point. Lots of people don't have that. And they have to go out and look for a phone box any time to make a call to anybody else. That was just a tiny thing. It helped me just think, yeah, I have been incredibly fortunate, really. I have not valued my phone as much as I should have done. And the more you've got, the more unable you become to understand what the pressures are on people who have nothing. Those who are being really economically pressed by the situation we're in at the moment. Their fuel bills are rising. They've got to do three jobs just to put food on the table. You have to go to the food bank again and again. And we need to understand that the wealthier we are, the more we tend to forget it. There's a risk of becoming controlled by money as well. You have to keep making money just because that's what you're about. You know, you're expected to do it. It's what everybody else does. So you, you, you get yourself on a treadmill you can't get off. And the more resources you've got, of course, <laughs> the more free time you've got for yourself, the more you can do things with a, a, a power, a financial power that you never had before, the more temptations you've got in your life. I suppose the train of um, scandals we're seeing in Parliament right now show that for some people, becoming an MP opens the door to a lot more temptation than it ever has done before. And that's why we've had 10 cases in this government so far. And let's face it, that's just in two years. Interesting stuff. The more you've got, the more risks there are. And Paul says, I've learned how to handle that. God has slowly, through my experience with him, taught me the secret of living the way I should. How about being poor when there's nothing in the wallet? Well, this word really means to be humbled. It comes from the word tapainos, which is a regular word for having nothing and being a humble person in Greek. And again, there are problems, aren't there? If you've got nothing, you can fall into all sorts of temptations. You can be so frustrated at your inability to do what you want to do. You can't help other people. You can't look after your kids properly. You can't even look after yourself properly. And you, be, you just live with constant frustration. When you wake up in the morning, there are already problems in your mind and clouds in the sky. How do you live through another day? All of that comes with being poor. There can be shame and insecurity. The number of people turning up at food banks and saying, I never thought I'd be here. I used to put things in, in, in the box in Sainsbury's or Tesco's to help other families, but I never thought myself I'd need this, this thing. And you can see that some of them feel unnecessarily ashamed, but poverty does that to you. It makes you feel insecure. Will I be able to cope this time next year? If it keeps getting worse, how much longer can I keep going on? You can have a sense of unfairness through the whole thing. And that can, if you're not careful, make you bitter. You start resenting what other people have got and you've not. You start noticing the comments they make that are not very understanding or perceptive, and you start building a chip on your shoulder. All of that can come with being poor. Poverty, too, can become an excuse for doing this. Oh, I can't do anything. Ah, I've got to work all the hours that God sends to keep my, 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 my children in food and clothing, so don't ask me to do anything down the church. No way. I can't contribute to anybody else. I've hardly got enough money to go by. Do you know, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 um, that this church in Philippi and the other churches in Macedonia uh, were really poor when a collection was being made for the poor saints in Jerusalem, and they begged to be allowed to contribute, and out of their poverty, they gave. And Paul talks about that's an amazing thing, that poor people who've got nothing still want to give, and they'd started to learn the secret of being poor. 
So Paul says there's a secret involved in this whole contentment thing. Contentment is a secret to be learned, and you need to learn to negotiate wealth and poverty alike if you're really going to stay contented through your whole life. The third thing is that contentment comes from having God's strength. There's that verse that we all know which says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Well, actually, that, the word do doesn't appear in the Greek. I can all things. And what it literally says in Greek is this, for all things, I have strength in one strengthening me. Sometimes people preach that verse, you can do anything through Jesus. He can take you all through, uh, through, through the world as a missionary. He can, he can do all sorts of things with your life. He can make you prime minister if he wants. You can do anything through the power of Jesus Christ. Not really what it's talking about. It's talking about all circumstances of life that can get you down and batter you and destroy you. And what Paul is saying is I've got resources to deal with all of those things. And whatever life throws at me, I can go through it. And I'll tell you what, I can go through it contentedly. So that's what he's talking about here. First of all, contentment. And then there's the giving thing. Um, back in the Second World War, when the bombs were bombing on South London, a young clergyman called J.B. Phillips sat in the bomb shelters, and while he was waiting for the Germans to stop knocking the place down, he used the time to do a translation of the letters of the New Testament, letters to young churches. He went on to do the whole of the New Testament. And J.B. Phillips, the paraphrase of the New Testament, was one of the first modern type of translations of the Bible that we got. Now, on these verses, he says this. This is, this is his version of it. I think it's, it's pretty good. He, Paul's talked about, I can do all of these things. I've got all of the resources I need for all of these things through him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, says Phyllis, I am not disparaging the way in which you are willing to share my troubles. In other words, just because I'm saying I can cope, I'm not saying, I don't need your gifts. Take them away. I don't want your money. I'm not saying that. It was really kind of you. You Philippians will remember that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, you were the only church who shared with me the fellowship of giving and receiving. Even in Thessalonica, you twice sent me help. Well, it says in our translation, you did it again and again. The phrase in Greek is a bit ambiguous, but at least twice they sent him help when he was in the... It isn't the value of the gift that I'm keen on. It's the reward will come to you because of these gifts that you have made. Now, what's Paul saying here about their gift and his receiving of it? I think there are three things. He's saying three things about Christian, Christian giving. They cover how you give, second, why you do it, and third, how you receive it. The first, how you give, I think he says there are three things. First of all, it's got to be voluntary. It's not forced. He's not demanding money from the Philippians. Come on, you guys, you're Christians now. Who brought you to Christ? I did. You owe me. Okay, come on, set up a banker's order straight away. He's not saying that. He's just delighted when they do give him something, but he's making it very clear. Hey, this is not a standing commitment. This is not something you've got to do. You do it because you want to do it. And that was a great thing about the gift they gave in 2 Corinthians. Out of their poverty, they pleaded for the privilege of being involved in ministering to the rest of the church who were even poorer than they were. So you give voluntarily. You give joyfully. And Paul says elsewhere, doesn't he, that God loves a cheerful giver. Somebody who gives not grudgingly. You know, I suppose I better. The whole church are looking at me here and the collection's coming around. I better put something in the bag. Okay, we'll put in an Albanian five-pound note. No, it's not that way, is it? It's, it's a case of giving joyfully because you want to. And finally, discerningly. Giving to where there are real needs. And Paul says, you know, I was in need. And you are the only church that sent me money at that point where I really needed it. And often, you know, people tend to give to popular causes. They give to what everybody else 
is giving too old. Just because they're big and they make a noise and they've got flashy publicity. <laughs> and looking for places where your, your, your money is really going to make a difference. Giving to people who need it, no matter how unfashionable the cause can be, is important. And he used to be on the, the executive of the uh, Women's World Day of Prayer, now the World Day of Prayer. And one of the things that they used to do every year was sort through all sorts of applications from gifts that they received from Christian ministries all over the world. And I think she can correct me on this, but what we used to find uh, I, was that some of the biggest organizations just assumed that they were going to get a big gift because they were just a big organization. They were supposed to say that they would use it for. They were supposed to, supposed to supply details of the project, but they thought, well, they've always given us money in the past, so they'll keep on doing it. And there were other little causes, too many of them to deal with sometimes, who desperately needed the money and sent in full details of what they were proposing to do with it. And sometimes it was great. But, you know, just because they were little and they were unknown, they tended to get overlooked. And the money went to the big places again and again. One of the things my wife tried to do for a few years, and I'm proud of her for this, was to reverse the balance and make sure that the money went to the unmet needs where they really were. We've only got so much to give. We need to put it in the right place. So some of those principles come out of the passage, I think. Second, there's why you do it. And you don't do it just to bless the people concerned. You do it because you're giving it back to God. What you give, you give to the Lord. And so Paul says later uh, in the passage, doesn't he? Your gifts are a fragrance offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. It's like taking something that's precious to you, like your bank account, and you put it on the altar, like an offering to God. And God sees that you're not just giving it to Paul the Apostle. You're not just giving it to Christian missions in the first century Europe. You're giving it to God. You're giving it back to him. So you do it primarily to the Lord. And that's why giving is a, a serious matter for Christians, isn't it? Because it's not just a, a, a case of, oh, I think I'll send something to such and such this week because, you know, it's, I've got enough and I think I can spare a little bit more. It's a matter of, Lord, what do you want me to do with the money you've entrusted me with? And third, how do you receive it? And Paul says he's grateful for the gifts. He really is. He doesn't want them to think he's throwing them back in, the, in their face. No, he'll take it and he'll use it and he'll love it. He's encouraged by the fact that after all this time, they still want to send him things. They still want to support his ministry. That is a tremendous thing uh, for a Christian worker to have, especially since he was in prison like Paul. But he doesn't want them to think that he's, he needs it. And he uses an interesting word when he says in, in verse 18, I have received full payment and even more. Because the word he uses for I have received full payment is the word apeko, which is what in those notes you would write in Greek at the bottom of a bill that had been settled. It's like stamping it, received. <laughs> you know, so the bill is dealt with. I don't need it. It's okay. It's all, you've done everything you needed to do. And you know, I, I can trust in, to God for whatever happens. If it comes from you, that's great. If it comes from somewhere else, that's great too. It doesn't matter. But that's the way it works. Well, in that passage we've read from J.B. Phillips, there's an interesting bit at the end. He says, it isn't the value of the gift that I am keen on. It is the reward that will come to you because of these gifts that you have made. Forget the value of the money that's come. I'm not going around my room counting, oh, five pounds, 10 pounds, 15 pounds. Whoa, this is great. That's not what gets me joyful. I'm going around saying, this is great because it gives you more treasure in heaven because you will receive a reward from the Lord for what you've given. And some people have said, well, this is a bit mercantile, isn't it? We give to God just because he's going to give back to us 
so we don't lose out. That doesn't sound very honourable. It's a bit kind of grubby and, and money laund and grabbing, doesn't it? And sometimes, you know, some Christian songs can make it sound that way. Here's a, a hymn, for instance, that Elvis put on his first Christian album back in 1960, written by an Assemblies of God evangelist a few years before. And uh, you probably know the song, but I'm satisfied with just a cottage below, a little silver and a little gold. But in that city where the ransomed will shine, I want a gold one that's silver lined. And uh, it goes on, I've got a mansion just over the hilltop in that bright land where we'll never grow old. And someday yonder we'll never more wander, but walk on streets that are pure as gold. And people think, well, you know, if you're doing all of this for your reward, it's a bit calculating, isn't it? It's not very honorable. Surely you should do it just out of love, just because you, 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 you love God. And this whole talk about reward in the New Testament, ah, do we really need that? Well, well remember last week uh, when we were talking about Romans, I mentioned um, C.S. Lewis's great sermon on the weight of glory. And he talks about this very problem right there. Why does the New Testament talk about reward? Do we need that stuff? And he says that... Uh, if you think about it, yes, we do things so that we can be rewarded. Why do you go to school? And Well, it's maybe because your parents tell you to. But why do you study things for your GCSEs and, and, and stuff like that and your A-levels? Why do you do that? Why do you put yourself through it? It's because of the reward that comes at the end. And Lewis said there are proper rewards and improper rewards. And a proper reward is what comes directly out of the activity that you're doing. You, well, he uses the example of learning Greek as a small boy. You might not want to learn all of these Greek uh, tenses and verbs and things like that. But out of that, you're going to get a great reward. You're going to get the reward of being able to understand Greek poetry. And that will help you as long as you live. Now, if you're not a great fan of Greek poetry, you might be thinking, oh. but uh, that was what C.S. Lewis found really exciting. When David Beckham spent all of those days in the park, in the rain, just practicing, being able to bend the ball into the, 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 the goal from uh, several hundred yards away, why did he do it? What was his reward at the end of that? Was it all the money? Was it all the fame? Was it the celebrity? Was it getting to marry Posh Spice? What was it that kept him going? No, those were kind of fringe benefits. The important thing was just being able to get that skill so perfect that you're able to do amazing things with a football. And so the reward was built into the activity. And what Lewis says in that sermon is the proper rewards that we get for anything are not simply tacked on to the activity for which they're given, but are the activity itself consummation. In other words, the more you get good at the activity, the more you get to the purpose of the activity, that's the reward that comes back. So what's our reward when we get to heaven? Well, it's knowing Jesus better, isn't it? It's being in his presence and really experiencing it to the full. And the more we've lived with him down here, the more we've lived the way that he wants us to, the more we've given for his sake, the more we get back because the more wonderful heaven will be for us. There'll be people who will get to heaven and not have much of a reward. They'll be like people who just escape as through the fire, as the New Testament puts it. People escaping from a burning building, taking nothing with them. And they'll still enjoy heaven. It'll still be the greatest experience of their life, but it won't be as deep as the experience of people who've given and given and given to God in this life, who've walked hand in hand with Jesus, and the reward has just grown until when they get to heaven, it's so deep and intense, it's unbelievable. And so that's the kind of reward I think he's talking about. Well, we've talked about um, uh, two of those things. Let's talk about the third one, and then we are absolutely done. The thir third thing is Christian fellowship. And this is where you get these verses at the end. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus, 
The brothers who are with me send greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. How many times does he use the word greet in there? And I think he's saying three things here. First of all, we all belong to each other. Greet all the saints in Christ Jesus. All the brethren who are with me send greetings. All the saints send greetings. And he's talking about everybody being involved in the same thing. And he's looking again at Euodia and Syntyche and saying, you ladies too, you're part of this deal. You're not cut off from one another. You're all part of the same family. We all belong to each other. And it's easy to forget that, isn't it? You just look at some Christian websites on the internet and you see people sniping and carping at other people, saying they've got the theology wrong, they're doing it all wrong, this church has the right beliefs and this church has the wrong And they all belong to Jesus. And what they're arguing about are minor things. But on all of those things, they find ways of building walls between them, splitting off from other people. And it's crazy because we all belong to one another. And so Paul is saying, if you're going to stand as one man for the faith of the gospel, you'd better realize we're all in this together. Second, some people will be particularly close. He talks about those who are of Caesar's household. Who on earth are they? Well, Caesar had a pretty big household. <laughs> it had grown massively in the days of the last emperor before uh, Nero. And he had a, a staff, uh, servants, slaves, uh, soldiers, messengers, all kinds of people, uh, which were pretty big. And so the members of Caesar's household in Philippians chapter 4 are not necessarily people who are particularly close to Caesar, but they're part of that whole operation. Now, Philippi, of course, was a Roman city as well. And so members of Caesar's household were coming to and fro all the time, bearing messages, taking taxes, doing all sorts of stuff. It's possible that Lydia, the woman who was a seller of purple uh, in, in, in Philippi, was one of them. Because purple was an imperial color. You couldn't buy that stuff unless you had a, 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 a permission from the emperor. And so she was maybe on the emperor's stuff. We just don't know. But certainly we do know that there were people in the church in, in, in Philippi who knew people who were coming and going because they were part of Caesar's household, and those guys were Christians too. Now, they could understand being involved in the same business themselves. The stresses and the strains that those members of that household had to go through. I mean, with Nero as your boss, it was tough being a Christian. And we know they were there. And the people in Caesar's household remembered the people that supported them uh, in prayer and, uh, and emotionally in Philippi, and they wanted especially to be greeted. We will find that, although we're one with everybody else in the church, there will be some people who are particularly close and supportive that we're drawn to, and God puts them in our path to help us. That's what Caesar's household was all about in there. Third thing, keep recognizing the family bond on recognizing and valuing your brothers and sisters in Christ. Not a bad note to strike at the end of a talk when you've got an AGM coming up. But he says, do it again and again. Greet, 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 greet. They greet you, you greet them. And the word greet doesn't just mean shake hands on a Sunday morning. It means give a warm hug to. <laughs> it's the kind of thing that's a family hello. When you see somebody who's in your family, you've not seen them for ages, and you say, ah, come here. It's that kind of thing. Say, do it again and again. Remind them that you value them, that you're excited about them, that you love being with them, that they're an important part of your life. Recognizing that family bond. And this is the final thing, and here we've got to finish. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Is this the Holy Spirit? No. Three times in Philippians, he talks about the Holy Spirit, and three times he talks about your spirit, the human spirit. 
And he's talked to, well, let's just see what those three things In the Holy Spirit, he says, he talks in 119 about your prayers and the Holy Spirit working together. In other words, the Holy Spirit takes your prayers and makes them effective. He says in 2.1, you have a common sharing in the Spirit. The Spirit brings Christians together and gives them this, this bond between one another. It helps us value one another. And then third, he talks in chapter 3 about you worship God by the Spirit. And the Spirit not just makes us effective, draws us together, it helps us be drawn to God as well. It helps us communicate meaningfully with our Father and worship him, see him as he really is. How about the human spirit? Well, there are three things there. First of all, you must stand firm in one spirit, he says in 127. You must be one in spirit and purpose, he says in 2.2. And then right here, he says, you need God's grace to be with your spirit. Because if you're going to allow the Holy Spirit to do all those things in column one, and if you're going to stand up to the challenges in column two, you need a touch of God's grace in your human spirit to make it happen. And so Paul ends the letter by saying, that's my insinuatio, I'm done now. Just remember, I want God's grace to be with your spirit so that you'll stand together, you'll give and receive properly, you'll value the fellowship that you've got, to be uh, one with another in ev every possible way that you can, and uh, you'll learn how to be content in every circumstance. Go and do it. Let's just pray, okay? Heavenly Father, thank you for all that you, there is in these small verses, and I've gone way, way over them because there's just so much more there that we could, could have got into but haven't. Thank you that your word is inexhaustible, and even right at the end of what was possibly his famous last words to the Philippians, Paul had big and weighty and important things to say to him. Help us as we reflect on our belonging together to put some of that stuff into practice for your name's sake. Amen.